Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Welcome to Law Focus, the show with the staunch focus on the law. My name is Basil Sharinda and I'll be your guardian of the law for the evening. Right at the heart of Bramfontein, Johannesburg, I'm becoming your point of legal information, bringing you legal arguments straight to your ear. This evening we are discussing what I'll, I'd love to refer to as private prison torture at the Mangaung Correctional Services. We are doing an exclusive, and that's why we're not going to have legal hotspots for this evening. This exclusive is done with Vest Justice Project's very own uh, investigative journalist, um, one of our very best, Miss Ruth Hopkins. Law Focus listener, and this show is not only done with the Vest Justice Project, but it's also done with other actors in the particular case, uh, like the Legal Resources Center. And we're also speaking to the main complainants of the case, which are the prisoners um, at the Mangaung Correctional Services Center. Now, what what transpired at that uh, prison is that there's a company called referred to as Group 4 Security, which is G4S, who received um, in layman's terms a tender. Uh, but in legal terms, it would be a private foreign investment um, contract with the state. And th- in this contract did entail that it had to produce finances of over 25.6 million, a billion in pounds. Um, to come and assist with the security of the place and also bring personnel and hire people within the country. And, and that came with an investment contract. The investment contract itself had to be in compliance with the particular laws that we have in the country. Now, what happened is that whilst the G4S is in charge with the security, the Minister of, uh, Minister of, of um, Correctional Services also has oversight over what happens at the place. Hence, they send inspectors to go and inspect uh, as to whether G4S is treating its civilians with or in concordance with the law, with dignity, with respect, and and also takes into cognizance some of their constitutional rights, including the right to physical integrity and other rights like discrimination and also Section 35 rights, which are the rights that which uh, give prisoners due process. And many other rights. The point is that there are certain pertinent rights that which um, were, were infringed in this particular case. Uh, and that is particularly because G4S, Group for Security, allegedly tortured inmates um, with a bid to find information or to extract information out of them. So this entire show will be hinged on that. And hence, we are going to listen to, to, listen to Mr. Ruth Hopkins, who's in studio with us, um, sp- speak to us about what that is about. And we're also going to invest. We're going to interview one of the prisoners who has been who has been quite bold, quite assisting, and quite strong, and is quite vocal and has been at the centre of the issue uh, while he was at the Mangaung Correctional Services Centre. Um, and we are also going to be speaking to the Legal Resources Centre, and they're going to explain their role in the main case. The main case being the case that which is brought. For, or for damages, uh, the delete case, um, and they're going to outline some of the challenges that which they experienced as they were trying to bring the case to book, or as they are still trying to bring the case to book. We're going to speak to them about why it's taking so long. We're going to speak to them about what the case is about so that we can have a better understanding from a legal perspective. Please stay with us. And as I've said, we're not going to have legal hotspots. So right after this, we'll be speaking to Ms. Ruth, Ruth Hopkins. We need to go to the break. You're listening to Law Focus. Law Focus. Point, point of information. Welcome back to Law Focus, the show with the staunch focus on the law. My name is Basil Sharinda, and I'm a guardian of the law for the evening. This week, we're talking about torture. Um, and in this torture, we're speaking about what group for security and the Department of Correctional Services have condone, condoned within their precincts. Uh, at the Mahung Correctional Services. Um, South African listener, law focus listener, it's, it's an uncomfortable story to talk about, but far more importantly, it's a very groundbreaking story. And in studio, we have Ms. Ruth Hopkins, who is an investigative journalist with the Vest Justice Project, to speak, up, to, speak to us about the investigation that which she has been stalwarting uh, for the past three years or so. Ms. Ruth, welcome. Thank you, Basil. I mean, you... You spoke. You, she spoke to us pre-record, or rather pre before this record, that you are dealing with two cases. Um, fundamentally, yes, law the cases, but these are people's lives. I understand. But in these two cases, can you please outline to us what are these two cases? What's going on? Yeah. So um, 
I, in 2012, I work for the Rich Justice Project um, and inmates write to us with their complaints. And in yeah. 2012, actually when, just after I started with the Rich Justice Project, I noticed that letters from Mangaung uh, Correctional Center um, were, c comparatively, there were a lot of them. Mm. We got a lot of letters from that prison. And so I decided to go take a look. And I went to the prison, which is run by G4S, which is a huge British security company. It's actually one of the biggest companies in the world. It's huge. It's Africa's biggest private employer. It's South Africa's biggest private employer. Um, and you'll probably go, hmm, G4S. But then if you look around, you'll see their cash in transit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vans yeah, everywhere. everywhere. So they run a prison in Bloemfontein. And um, I went there and... To cut a long story short, in over a period of a year, I interviewed around 100 inmates and warders and other sources and video footage was leaked to me, mm. audio, audio uh, material was leaked to me. I spoke to government officials, I spoke to people working for G4S and based on that, in October 2013, I ran the expose basically and what I found was that uh, a lot of inmates in that prison were routinely being electroshocked tortured, beaten up, uh, leading to severe uh, injuries, and more more kind of, I could say, interestingly, but I mean, it's, yeah, I guess more interestingly, they were also uh, being forcibly being injected with antipsychotic drugs, drugs. As, a, as a form of crowd control, just, just as a way of kind of controlling the crowd. But legally speaking, when is this drug supposed to be used? Legally speaking, you're not really allowed to forcibly inject anyone with uh, antipsychotic drugs unless okay. someone is a, is, a, is a danger to himself or his environment. And then there needs to be a whole paper trail. So there needs to be two physicians mm -hmm. who um, check up on the person and who, who decide this person needs to be medicated involuntarily. Um, and a guardian or a partner, you know, like a husband or someone who has responsibility over this person also has to consent yeah. if the person can't consent. So all of, all of these rules were completely neglected and completely ignored, actually. Mm. So, and I also found that inmates were being put into isolation cells up to four years. And, you know, legally, you're only allowed to put someone in an isolation cell for 30 days maximum. Uh, and then lastly, I also found evidence of people being tortured to death. Um, yeah. And the, the prison authorities covering it up. So in this evidence, you you get it in statements. Um, like I said, so I spoke to, uh, I would say approximately a hundred inmates in total, yeah. about thirty warders. Um, I had video footage. So I had video footage shot of the eggs themselves or carrying shot inside the prison and I had a uh, video I, I well it was leaked to me um, video footage of a forced injection of somebody who who very clearly said I don't want this who also very clearly didn't have didn't seemingly didn't look like a mentally disturbed person yeah, yeah. and nonetheless he was injected so when I gathered all that information and I also got government reports saying comparing this prison to Guantanamo Bay reports Yo, that, yeah. that had been you know Guantanamo Bay right I remember yeah. Guantanamo Bay yeah <laughs> <laughs> Code Red yeah you know so so and th these 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 reports were all ignored mm. and then I came with the the big expose then the 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 minister of correctional services at the time Sboon Ndebele he said yeah, yeah. this is unacceptable this is inhumane we're going to leave no stone unturned we're going to uh, investigate all these allegations and we'll publish the report in 30 days and this was I think November 2000 2013. And that is the birth of the new case now. Yeah, so to this day that report hasn't been released. DCS for some reason is is not willing to release this report. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the one case. So the first case though, I think, well maybe not more important but more sort of uh, pertaining to the, to the actual issues. So the Legal Resources Centre is representing 42 inmates who have been subjected to this treatment, including forced injections, electroshocking assaults, you know, uh, injuries, lengthy isolation, and they're suing for civil damages. Mm. And then the second case pertains to this investigation report. So the Centre for Applied Legal Studies here at WITS, mm. um, they've... They, um, applied under the Promotion of Access to Information Act, PIA. Mm. They applied for access to this report, I think about three years ago. Um, and DCS, so first they applied to DCS because it was DCS's investigation report. DCS just completely ignored CALS, 
didn't appear in court, just ignored everything to such an extent that the um, Cowles was about to kind of force them to to respond or mm. otherwise the judge would rule in their favour. So very, very last minute, suddenly G4S has applied to be included in the case. Mm. Um, so and, and they are now saying that uh, they can't release the medical records of these inmates because it's highly... Um, you know, it, it falls under privacy and they're asking for uh, Cal's and G4S and the judge to look at these documents in camera, which means no one's allowed to be there. It's like it's, like it's just the the parties. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's, 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 the, one, that's the, the freedom of information uh, case. And then in the other case, interestingly, uh, the um, Legal Resources Centre... Um, so they're, they're uh, representing 42 inmates who, who basically claim they've been tortured. And in that case, uh, G4S was a party to that case, and they've responded saying, well, you have to give us the medical records of these inmates. Yeah. So it's just very interesting to see like how uh, a multinational with a huge global footprint mm. escapes legal um, responsibility in this way they just have in both cases they have a tactic of kind of delaying postponing you know asking the judge for these kind of silly like in-camera sessions and I, and I hear that I mean I mean for for information sake they have they have a contract of worth over 25 years which is more than 28 billion dollars or in pounds in fact yeah um, and and that gives them a lot of power and a lot of control into as to w- legal proceedings, the kind of lawyers they can get to deal with this matter, but particularly in, in terms of how they treat the ilma- inmates, because you spoke about the evidence that which you've gathered, and in that evidence you spoke about how uh, they, were, they, they were they were left in isolation for three years, and, and clearly in these spaces there were no cameras. There are. There are there's actually CCTV cameras uh, throughout the whole prison, um, but there are blind spots. Uh, where there, there are no cameras, one of them is is healthcare. Yeah. The prison, like when as you coming into healthcare, that there are no CCTV cameras there. And then in the isolation unit, which they've strangely called Broadway, I don't know why. Um, but in that in that unit, in the cells, there, there there are no cameras. So the pattern that the that the inmates would tell me about is that they would either. Um, they would either cause actual trouble, so they would either like be caught with, you know, a, a handmade weapon, or mm, they attack mm. someone else, or they attack a warder, and then, but some and some inmates they hadn't actually done anything wrong, so it doesn't actually, so it's kind of both, um, both kind of of inmates, so people who actually cause trouble, or people who be who are perceived as being troublemakers. The EST, which is an emergency security team, it's like the mm. riot team in the yeah, yeah, yeah. in the prison, and they're also called the ninjas because they like dress in black and they've got tasers and electrified shock shields and batons and they're armed, right? And they're called to crises. And so what the inmates told me is that they'd come to their cell, they'd take them to Broadway, they'd take them into a cell where there's no CCTV footage, they'd they'd make them strip naked, pour water on them. Uh, and sometimes even like take the mattress off the bed so that it would be so that in place that the inmate on a on a metal bed frame. Mm. So both water and metal kind of increases the electric yeah, shock. Yeah. Uh, and then they just shock the hell out of them and kick them and beat them and uh, insult them. And where's the, where's the DCS when all of this is happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, at the prison, there's a someone called a DCS controller, mm. uh, and so it's actually it's actually an office. So it's 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 about three or four people who are employed by DCS, and they are there at the prison to oversee several things: use of force, medical issues, basically all prisoners' rights. And then they they're basically also like responsible for reporting this to DCS. But obviously, in in this privately run prison this didn't happen and that actually in the investigation really surprised me because i was thinking like in a south african setting you know here you've got a a a british multinational you know like a former colonial power who's coming into this country um is has managed to grow into the biggest uh one of the biggest private employers in this country they are uh taking over a very essential task of the state by you know imprisoning south african citizens mm-hmm. earning money off it 
torturing the hell out of them and and getting away with it. I really thought, like in in the political South African context, mm-hmm. when I exposed this, it, that you know they'd be out in no time. But interestingly, the response was very different. And uh, so this minister, Spoon Nabella, he initially was like, I'm going to leave no stone unturned. He even said, the privatization of prisons has failed, mm. which was a huge, bold statement. He then disappeared. He was appointed um, high commissioner in Australia yeah. and then was recalled because he had to stand trial for corruption. And now he's completely disappeared off the political landscape. The then uh, National Commissioner of Correctional Services, Jolingana, same thing, highly critical, uh, a, li- a little while later disappeared. Um, and then I think what happened was a huge cover-up. Um, because otherwise, why isn't this report released yet? Why haven't they lost the contract? Why aren't mm. they? Why haven't they been kicked out of the country? You know, and I think I think what happened is that actually the prison contract, the the let's say the mother contract, the the contract between the states and G4S, it's, it's actually not in hands of G4S. It's in hands of um, uh, an entity called BCC, Bloemfontein Correctional Services. G4S is part of that consortium. It has a 20% share, but the Old Mutual has another 20% share. And then there are three Bloemfontein-based companies who I think are shell companies who also have a share in the contract. And I think that in the end was stronger than than you know the south african narrative around you know this former colonial uh you know now multinational doing stuff in their country i think there was so much money to be earned from this contract and so much money was actually going to south african companies the tenders and the what what i think yeah. in the end my suspicion is um that that's why nothing has actually happened cuz g4s has a presence in I think about 90 countries mm. and you know they're, they're originally UK they're a British company and they run I think about five or six prisons in the UK and they've they've run into terrible trouble there as well because it's a multinational earning money off I think human misery because that's basically what prison is um, and they underpay and overwork their staff you know and so in, in the UK, they've run into trouble in two different uh, prisons, a, med, a place called Medway, which is a youth detention facility, and Brookhouse, mm. which is an immigration uh, facility. In both uh, detention facilities, you can see there's abuse, there's violence, there's verbal abuse, but nothing that reaches the level of, of my investigation, whereby I've come across broken limbs, you mm. know, severe electroshocking, people who have been given so much antipsychotic drugs that they're, mm. they're basically kind of spastic. You know what I mean? Like they have like permanent side effects. So it's, it's nothing at the level of South Africa, but in the UK, G4S is, fa- is facing phenomenal fines, is losing contracts, is not doing well, you know, because mm. there's more, I think, more like more accountability than there was here. It's just gone. But wouldn't you say that it's also because of lack of financial muscle? Yeah. Because GFO, G4S comes with a lot of power and money. And I think we've seen this with many multinational corporations like uh, your Gupta family as well. We've seen it with companies like KPMG where they're able to monopolize spaces so much that even the country itself or rather the government itself does not have enough power to put them to accountability yeah. or transparency. I mean, one of the issues that, that for me are interesting is is how they, the the DCS doesn't want to give out the report on the investigation because that is a red flag on so many issues because then it may be because they found some things that implicate them as well uh, because they also become part of it. Hence, I was asking you whether they have a control controller on the on on the, on site because if they do, then they become implicated not only by vicarious liability but also. Specifically, they they also become part of the crime itself, uh, the part of the corruption itself, and part of the tortures itself. So, what would that mean now for each and every single person who is in charge at DCS? Should this matter go out all the way to um, to 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 a commission of inquiry, or all the way to an arbitration, or to court? Um, 
I mean, I, I would be very happy to see it end up in court and not, not just a civil uh, case, also a criminal case. Criminal case, yeah. Because, I mean, there's one, one case that I've, that I've, I've worked on and, I've, and that, that, have the, that has been published is around the case of Isaac Nelani, who in 2005 um, was, again, you know, this pattern. He was taken, he was in some unit, was then taken to Broadway to this isolation unit where he was, like, tortured for hours and um, then died and then G4S tried to make it look like a suicide by uh, hanging trying to so the, the interesting thing is that in Broadway in this isolation unit there was this one cell there that's actually a double cell so yeah wait let me let me yeah. stop you for, mm-hmm. for me and my listeners yeah. did you say that they tried to make it look like suicide yeah so and what I'm trying to say is that this this double cell right it's yeah. it's colloquially known as the dark room on Broadway because that's where they would bring all the inmates to torture them and ironically it was built as a suicide prevention cell so and, and nothing in the cell is movable like the, the bed the chairs the toilet it's all immovable mm. and they keep the temperature low there because it's basically a place where people go to cool off when they're you know for what reason um, not cool <laughs> Um, and it, but but in reality, it was used as a torture chamber, and uh, and then they so um, I've then found the, the there was a magisterial inquest into his death because DCS at the time also didn't trust G4S's narrative on this on this death. Mm. The the magisterial inquest looked at the pathologist who actually said this death is suspicious at the time in 2005. The reason he said it's suspicious is. Okay, he was found with like a piece of cloth around his neck, and he had like a uh, like a, a mark around his neck. But he, and and he said so. Probably he died by strangulation. However, what is very suspicious is he has bruising on the heart, mm. and the bruising on the heart can be can can be can arise through CPR when you give someone uh, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a sign of it was a sign of either antimodium or It was on, the, it was on the back of his heart. Oh. So and you can only get that by blunt force trauma. Mm-hmm. So that's a very clear sign that he he was injured, like not a little bit, but he was fatally injured. Um, and so I mean that just goes to show that the 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 country the, not the country the company is deeply corrupt. It it tries to like cover up murders. Mm. And that's why I I think a civil case is great, but I actually think they should be prosecuted. They should be more. But the prob the problem is that uh, you know I think South Africa is in bed with way too many multinationals, and mm. you know even though it has a very strong like human rights culture and constitution and yada yada yada, it's in the end you know if there's any money to be made, that kind of overrules. And I think that's what go- I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think that's what what's going on here that. You know all the tenders and subtenders, and you know the the paving and the roofs and the and the phone system. It's all of it is money. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think I think that kind of made this case into a non-case. And you're also right about like the multinationals like G4S. They can afford the big five lawyers. You know the Norton Rose, Weber Wenzel. I forget the other uh, other yeah. companies. You can afford them. Whereas you know they're up against Cal's and LRC. You know it's non-profit lawyers who like operate on a shoestring budget and who do have you know the conviction that human rights are essential to human dignity. Blah blah blah. But they don't have the budget. And so the the strategy of it's it's a well-known strategy is just to postpone, delay. You know, never actually get to the merits. Just make, just run up the other party's bill. Mm. Uh, we were speaking to Ruth Hopkins, who is an investigative journalist with the Vets Justice Project here at the University of the Vets, uh, Vet Vatis Rand. Ms. Hopkins, thank you. Thank you. Law Focus, handing you your rights. And you're still listening to Law Focus. Welcome back to to our show this evening about Group 4 Security. Um, and on the line, we have one of the inmates from the Mangaun Correctional Services about to give us insight about some of the experiences that which um, they undergo in, in prison. Um, uh, welcome, sir. Welcome to Law Focus. Welcome, sir. Thank you for being with us. Yeah. I mean, so we are talking about the, the torture that which was going on uh, at the Mangaung Correctional Services and hence we called yeah. you so that you can give us a bit of insight about where you've been, yeah. how long you've served there 
And so let's start. Let's okay. start with where where were you detained? Okay, I arrived at Mangaung in 2004. Okay. I was placed in a unit called the World Unit. Yeah. They call it induction unit. During that time, it's whereby they are assessing you which site are supposed to go in terms of work and order. It yes. was designed for that people. Yes. But what they realized, they are not using it for that Mangaung. They are keeping you there in order to see where they can put it whereby you won't have people, maybe you are a gangster from another prison, they don't want you to meet other gangsters, so they are still looking for a place for you. Not the real reason it was formed for, that is the induction. Mm. Okay, after that, what happened, I arrived in 2004, they showed me the skills that they were having, I was interested in doing the skills. As a result, I did some of the skills such as woodwork, financial skills and prostitution operating. The Mangawung was meant to help inmates change their behavior. Mm. There are distress controllers which were there to check and oversee whether the Mangawung was doing the job according to the way it is. Unfortunately, Mangawung was not doing the job the way it's supposed to be. Mm. Why I'm saying that? First, when it comes to the issue of skills, we have two senior instructors. These two senior instructors, what they do, they teach other inmates how to do the skills. Mm. Then these skills become their tutors. Once these people know the job, and the two senior instructors, they, 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 they go back and let the job being done by these uh, tutors. Mm. My problem now with these tutors is they end up releasing people, giving people certificates if, if they are clear about the skill, or if that person is not clear about the skill. I'm talking from experience. There are many people that have done the skill at Mangaung, but when you interview him about the skill, he's not clear about it. Mm. Moving away from that, coming to the issue of uh, hospital, the hospital is pathetic. Mm. The rate of inmates who died in hospital was very high. As a result, it pushed me to do some investigation. Because there was an issue of injection that has been mentioned as something that is being used to inmates who are violent. But by the look of things, it was no longer the violent inmates that were being given this injection. Everybody was being given this injection. What does this injection do to a human being? That person becomes a robot. He cannot do, he cannot think, he cannot do anything. You understand? Mm. That's what I hate about it. So what I did, I decided the best way is for me to make sure that I investigate where does this thing come from. Then I realized that no man, this injection was not meant for the inmate. It was meant for something else. I stole that injection, I took it out to the journalists I was working with, which was coming from that trust uh, center. Mm. How did I make this uh, journalist? I heard about her from another inmate. The security was tight, but I told him he must come as a lawyer. He sat down and he gave everything to her about what was happening. Mm. There are inmates that will not lie according to that injection. Once I saw that injection, I knew that I had evidence now. I took it out. Two, there's a group of security, which they call ninja. Their primary job is to beat inmates. Mm. As well as inmates, there's a place that is being called a dark room. And when you are taken to Broadway, they will take a video and visualize you. Once they are in Broadway in that dark room, the video is switched off. It's when they started to beat you. Then they throw you in the cell while you have not been attended by a, a doctor or a nurse after those beatings. Mm. As a result, I decided to expose the prison. While I was there, I met with one of the senior district officials, Mr. Sky, who was the prison head at Hotley during the Charlie Commission. 
I asked him why he was there. He said, no, he was there to oversee what was being done by these officials from DCS and also Mangaung. Mm. I gave him every story because there are people who lost their lives at Mangaung based on the torture. Those people's families were never told the reality what happened to their people. They lied to them. Also, if you're going to look at the issue of people getting released, especially who are serving life sentences at Mangaung, we were told that we will only be released once we are left with six months. And by the look of things, it's what made inmates angry. We started by burning the prison. I was stationed at Wall. I moved from Wall to Patu Wall. From Patu Wall, I went to Portillip. From Portillip unit, I went to Mount Gambia unit. I went to Rai Hill unit. Mm. So when we started now to, to, to revolt against the management because we're not happy about the way I've been run within the prison. The then minister of DCS, that is Mrs. Lefizioma Pisangapula, we're expecting her to come and listen to our credentials, which she failed to do that. Then hostages followed. I remember that the, the, the first hostage it took place at the Broadway. Then the other one took place uh, between uh, Rye Hill. Then the third hostage it took place at, at Alcohol whereby a, a, a private doctor and a nurse were held hostage by the inmates. Why inmates decided to go on a hostage? It was because inmates no longer wanted to be at Mangaung, and Mangaung was refusing to release the people to disappear. Hmm. The situation about the prison is totally abnormal. We were complaining about the issue of phones. The phones that are being used, they're overcharging us in terms of the money. Mm. They complain about the issue of food in the kitchen. At Mangawoom, we used to spend a year without eating meat. You will only eat the meat on the 25th during Christmas Day. And when you taste the meat, it's not a fresh meat that you're eating. And you will only eat it again another 25 December next year. Mm. Also... The other thing that was bothering inmates, we are far away from home. And terrorism was being targeted as the primary cause of all the problems, of which that was not the case. Where I see the management failing, the management were not fully trained about how to handle an inmate. Mm. Two, the people who were employed at Mangawung, at first they were not allowed even to have unions. They were being uh, given a, a mandate to say, if you join a, a union, you must know that you lost your job. Those people who were employed in Mangaung, you only find out, most of them, they never worked before. They are desperate. They want to keep the job, no matter what consequences are. Mm. Nobody was prepared to take the information out of Mangaung and give it to the public so that the public can be able to know what is happening at Mangaung. What pushed me to, to, to do this is because I realized if ever I'm going to keep quiet, I'm on the line to die like other fellow inmates who have passed away. Mm. Remember, Mangaung has their own mortuary inside the center. And I'll make an example. If an inmate, let's say, passed away during the night, that inmate will sleep on that cell with that dead body. Then the following day, the SATF will be called you will see that inmate being dragged out of the cell and taken to the mortuary. Coming to the incident of violence, there are so many incidents of violence that took place at Mangaung. One of them that I, I still remember vividly, the twin Pacey, who was a big five, was being stabbed to death by the 1080s. Wait, wait, they, they were that being stabbed to death? A painful death because... It was not nice that they used to, to take his inner parts out. It was the, the, the ring of a trailer that was used to take his inner, out, inner parts out. He passed away. And again, the similar was from the side of the management. Because that guy was removed from Batu Wall to Mount Gambia in order to save him. 
But the very same people that these attackers were able to move out from their unit and be able to go to the same unit that this guy was being held by lying to the management and saying, no, they want to do school. Then the management let them go in. Only point that their people was to go there and kill that guy. That guy was killed. Another one was Madondo. Madondo passed away in the Senate Friday. He was tortured and left for death. In the morning, that inmate was dead. Madondo was working there as a cleaner. He saw the inmate first who passed away. The name of the inmate that I'm talking about was Isaac Melani. Mm. That inmate was seen by Madonna, and Madonna was given money to start and was transferred to KZN. I tried to hide the family of, 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 of Isaac Melani. What happened to him? There was another inmate also that also suffered a great deal at Manawo, who was having a problem of food, complaining that no, he's not uh, go, uh, not uh, gonna eat. Uh, them, they must try something soft for him based on what the doctor said. Mm. The Mangawung prison sent that guy to hospital and that guy was operated looking for something that caused him not to eat uh, stamp. I found it very, very disturbing because when that guy was operated, his next of kin was not informed. Anything that could have happened to that guy, they were going to lie and not tell the truth. Mm. Those are some of the things that are very, very terrible and disturbing at Mangao. Yeah, you've given us a strong account on what is happening at Mangao. As a result, once we started uh, opening the case, the Mangao was investigated thoroughly, and the contract was supposed to be terminated by the TCS. But because there are some of the members of the AMC who have shares at Mangaung, they didn't want that contract to be terminated. Mm. If you remember, the then National Commissioner, Nonsigelelo Tolingana, took the matter to the parliament. And even in the parliament, the, 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 the Mangaung G4S were suspended. And then they put in this S as in charge, but temporarily. Mm. Again, they brought back the management of, of Mangaung. That management signed the government of 25 years. What they are doing there is not helping the inmates. Mm. So after that, I met with the lawyers from UK. It's when now those lawyers came to South Africa to assist us to open a case against Mangawung, a low suitcase, because we were tortured, because we were injected, because we were beaten. The case went to UK, and it was referred back to South Africa, which was given legal resources. I'm very disappointed to look at the center because they have done nothing about the case. The case is still stuck in their offices even now. Mm. We have a strong case against G4S and the Department of Correctional Services. Mm. As a result, I'm a lifer now who's applying for a parole to the minister. The same minister that I'm applying to him is the one that I'm laying charges against because I'm claiming the minister together with G4S. The Minister of Correctional Services and the Minister of Justice is the same minister, where I see a conflict of interest based on my application. Mm. Remember what happened to my application. I sent my application to the minister on 2016, having achieved everything that the minister asked from me mm. in terms of the skill. I did motor-mechanic engineering. I was doing diploma on it. I did woodwork. I did financial skills. I did uh, office machine operator. To my surprise, after a year, that is 2017, I was transferred to St. Albans in PE. When I was there, it's when I realized, okay, these people are removing me from where I was. I don't know why, but when I go and check what happened, they removed my certificate when they're sending the file to the minister. The minister didn't see my achievements in prison. As a result, I was given a further profile of 18 months. But now when I ask the officer to go and show me the skills, because I know I've got the skills, why the minister would want me to do the skills that I already have? Mm. When we go there to the file, everything the minister asked me to do is there on the file. So they say, no, it was an error from the side of the minister to say, go and do these things because you've got best skills that even DCS is not offering.
Mm. But believe me, I'm still in prison even today. I really don't understand because now it's been 20 years in prison. I don't know whether my 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 case is because I I, I expose Mangau or what or is this a punishment? I was not gonna be able to get part of a report because of what I did, and I never broke a law because what I did was in the interest of the community, in the interest of the public, in the interest of the inmates who were dying in Mangau. I mean, uh, th- thank you for your account. I would have loved to take it further than this. Uh, you gave us quite a strong yes, account yes. on the corruption in Mangaung. You told us about the torture. You told us about um, the health uh, st- uh, uh, implications. You told us about the psychotic drugs. And we are going to speak to LRC yes. as well to get an account uh, on, wa- on what they are doing for the case and why they haven't done yes. anything much up until thus far. But unfortunately, yes. we have to stop here. Thank you for your contribution no uh, this evening. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus. Point, point of information. The main questions that which um, this Justice Project has been interested in uh, in relation to the Department of Correctional Services have been mainly that, um, which are eight questions, has been that whether the DCS is in possession of the medical files of Mangaung inmates how many fines DCS has imposed on G4S, if G4S has violated the contract between, that is the investment contract between the state and itself, if DCS is covering up torture, and why the investigation report has not been published. And that particular investigation report, as you as you would recall, is the one that which uh, the, Center, the Center for Applied Legal Studies is actually trying to get, um, is, is actually trying to apply in court to get uh, through the promotion of, of information um, act. When you look at those particular aid questions, it ties down to the the heart of the case, because at the end of the day, one may conclude, should they be entitled to conclude that there is something that which is being hidden by this report, because there is a report that which is released by the DCS, but this report has not reached the hands of the public, and that's where the problem lies. So clearly, the, the, in this report, there is so much that is not supposed to be there, or is not supposed to have been supposed to have happened. And should it be found that DCS has violated its contract, that means a contract may have to be terminated. But between me and you, think about what will happen to the prison itself should that contract be terminated. But I mean. Also, there is a sunset clause in, in, in any investment contract. And that sunset clause can take um, an, a provisional measure of an interim of over a good eight to nine months uh, until someone else takes over. But the problem is, who's going to take over? Who has that kind of muscle to take over that contract? Does it mean that maybe we need many subcontractors? But we saw what, what happened with Life is Many when we tried subcontractors that are many. I understand that there were other challenges with life as a demeaning, like the fact that the, the contracts were tried, were tried to be implemented too quick. But the challenge is having too many actors may have problems as to um, implementation. So does that mean that we may try to try something similar in this case? Because there may, there may not be somebody who has over $25 billion to handle a similar contract. So that may be the, those may be the practical challenges that which the Department of Correctional Services is dealing with. But those are the main questions that which need to be answered here. Um, anti-psychotic psychotic drugs, drugs were used. Uh, that, that drug was called Clopixol. It was used on prisoners. There's no report. And that report has to be released under the Medical and Related Substances Act. It has not been reported in writing. There's a problem there. The second issue is that there was torture. There were no cameras where this torture was was uh, effected or administered on prisoners. That also needs a report. We need a report to find to know what happened about that. And then lastly, um, people died, and somebody needs to account for it, regardless of how much power those people have. You're listening to Law Focus. Law Focus on and welcome back and I'm here I'm still sitting here as a guardian of the law for the evening and my name is Bezo Shirinda we are still discussing torture and what the group for security and department of correctional services have not only condoned but have rather turned a blind eye on as what has been happening at the Maung correctional services
We've spoken to an inmate, we've spoken to the investigative journalist, Ms. Ruth Hopkins, and now we are speaking to the lawyers that which are pushing this case further from the Constitutional Litigation Unit of the Legal Resources Center, Ms. Karina Dutoy, is going to be discussing this case with us. Ms. Karina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, it's, it's a pleasure. I mean, f- fundamentally, it, there is there's, there's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of pain but far more importantly we are discussing criminals in this case um, and I understand that th- there is an angle that which Legal Resources Centre is approaching this case from and we need to understand that what is your involvement um, just from an overview perspective um, so I, I appreciate that we are talking about criminals and in some cases very serious criminals and so they, they don't make very sympathetic clients But Mm -hmm. I think what one has to understand is these are people who are technically in the care of the state. So their freedom of movement has been limited because they committed a crime. But they're subject to the sort of authority that they've been placed under. So in a a certain extent, there's a a extent to which they are uh, helpless, one would say, because they are at the subject of the management of the prison. And related to that... Every person in the country, whether they're a criminal or not, has a right to freedom and security of the person, which includes the right not to be tortured in any way. Mm-hmm. And I think we do need to remind ourselves of our apartheid past and, and the fact that torture was, you know, dealt out with impunity in the past. And when we, when we all committed to the Constitution, we committed to an environment in a country in which we were no longer going to allow those sort of things. So when a criminal gets punished, the restriction of their freedom of movement is their punishment. Living in prison is by no means a joke. It is not great. But torture is illegal. And so inflicting intentionally harm on people is a violation of their constitutional right, irrespective of whether they're criminal or not. Um, And it is not something that we as a country should condone. I think it's very important also to remember there was a case in the early 90s, just after the constitution was passed, that talked about the fact that corporal punishment was still being given as a sentence for children. And in that case, the, the Judge Sachs said that it, it's not just an infringement of the dignity of the person that's being whipped. It's also an infringement of the dignity of the people who see it, who witness it, and the person who's giving the corporal punishment. So we really have to ask ourselves questions about a management structure that allows torture to happen. And what kind of environment it is when the wardens are expected to administer torture and um, people are subjected to it. Mm. And so but what is the application that LRC is launching? So we're not launching an application. We are representing prisoners who are currently in, or who were incarcerated in uh, Manukhanung Prison, which is being managed by G4S. And they are making claims that they were tortured in various different ways, including being placed in isolation for weeks on end, which means that they literally don't see or speak to another person for weeks and weeks. They sort of lose track of time. Or more seriously, that they're beaten, assaulted, that they're shocked with shock shields so that they lose consciousness. And far more seriously, that they are injected with psychotropic drugs against their will. And also when it's not medically prescribed, they're not psychotic. But giving someone who's not psychotic psychotropic drugs is very serious. So that basically uh, constitutes a number of offenses, criminal offenses that have been perpetrated against them. Um, but it also means that uh, these people have a civil claim for infringement of their rights and that they can claim damages in, in an amount of money from, from G4S for the torture that they experience. So we are launching civil claims on their behalf to claim civil damages for them. Mm. And, and so what kind of evidence have you gathered thus far? So that is really a very big part of the problem in the case, is that our clients are still incarcerated, so it's very difficult to gather evidence. We have their oral testimony, we have some psychological assessments, but it will be a struggle for us to get evidence um, in relation to medical evidence. Um, It'll be hard for us to get the medical records from the prison because they're, of course, on the other side of this case. So, So evidence is certainly something that is going to be a challenge for us in this case. And so how has the First Justice Project assisted in that regard? I, I would be hesitant to speak about 
um, the overlap between the two organizations, I must confess. I think that Ruth um, speaking to the prisoners a lot more directly and getting their stories, but there's a difference between writing a newspaper article, which is also incredibly important for the case, and gathering evidence, which you have to use in a court process. Um, so uh, I, I think that that's about as much as I'm willing to say about, about that. Oh well, I was I was I was I was willing to go further by asking that, um, in as much as she may have um, investigated or rather uh, asked questions to the extent that she was writing an article, could could she be able to assist LRC to get a hold of the, that personnel so that LRC can get affidavits from that from those particular? Well, you see, I don't want to speculate about those things because this is also going to be a public broadcast, I imagine. Yes. Um, so I didn't, wouldn't want to put anybody in jeopardy or talk about what our strategy exactly is going to be or anything like that. I think that Ruth has been incredibly pivotal to the case. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody could do this without her. Um, but I don't want to talk about specific things that we may or may not do. Okay. And so and so far, how 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 far is LRC so far with the case? It's not very far, I must confess. So I think what people um, must remember is the legal resources a public interest organization. We don't have a lot of money. Mm. Um, we do everything on a shoestring budget. And this is the kind of case that actually needs quite a lot of investment and money. Um, so in order to get medical reports, medical assessments, um, those kinds of things, to travel to visit the prisoners, we are short on funds. Um, mm. So that's a constraint that we're suffering. Um, we've launched the, the cases on behalf of the um, uh, plaintiffs. And we have been engaging with the other side on a number of notices. Mm. Um, but we are at the moment stuck at the phase where we have to start medical assessments of the prisoners because we don't at the moment have funds to pay the medical experts. But we are hoping to secure funds within the next few months. Oh, so, so hopefully by the end of the year we should be somewhere with that. Yeah, but I think people do need to be realistic. Civil claims are some of the slowest cases in South Africa. So if you think a criminal trial takes a long time, a civil claim takes even longer. It it isn't Mm. something that can be resolved within a few months. It is something that takes quite a number of years to resolve. Especially when you have uh, so many criminals, or rather so many claimants. Well, I think what you're trying to say is it's a problem that our claimants are in prison. That does make uh, a litigation slightly more complex. Mm. I mean, because we, we, we've had the opportunity to speak uh, to one of the inmates um, and, and perhaps uh, maybe unfairly so to LRC has actually lambasted LRC and said that uh, LRC has been dragging its feet. Um, that, that's not the position that I'm taking, but rather the posi- I'm looking at it from the perspective of we are speaking to a leader of most of these claimants who is saying that we are available we will take whatever steps we can so that we can assist that this case gets pushed further. And right now we are speaking to, to, to you, Ms. Karina, and you are saying that it's difficult for you guys to communicate with them. So we, we are struggling to understand what is this communication barrier and what causes it? Um, well, I think before you, before you I answer that, I think, you know, I, I absolutely understand that the clients and the, the, the claimants are frustrated. I... I can only apologize because this is taking a very long time um, and, and certainly isn't ideal that it is dragging, but it is. And so there's really no getting away from that. What I would say is that there are a number of reasons for it. And again, I'm not without sympathy. I am very sorry that it's taking so long for the clients and for their frustration. But the reality is that we are a law clinic. We are not a firm that has a lot of people running around who can do things. We, I am a single attorney working on behalf of 16 claimants. Mm. Um, there are numerous problems in their cases, including prescription. So it's not, a, it's not a simple matter of saying it's taking a long time. There are reasons for it. Um, funding is a big part of it. They're not the kind of clients who can pay to get a lot of you know, psychological attention and, and that sort of thing. And so we are dependent on pro bono assistance and we are dependent on getting funds, which we've launched three different funding applications to see if we can get funding for this case. But, but there are very, very serious constraints that they need to understand. Um, the communication barrier relates to funding as well. So for me to go and visit the prisoners, I would need to take about two, three weeks out of the office. 
Mm. Um, I would need to travel and go and see them at prison, make arrangements to see them. And all of those things, it's not just the money that's involved, it also takes me out of the office. Um, so there are, just at the moment, the way that we're working, some really serious um, capacity constraints. Again, I do understand their frustration where that's concerned. I wish that I had another attorney helping me, but this is where we're at. Mm. And and there's no way in which you can be in communication with perhaps another law firm to assist. This is not the kind of case that people are going to easily do pro bono. So um, I'm not sure what you mean with another law firm. Do you mean like a commercial law firm? Uh, no, any, any kind of law firm. Maybe to get assistance to rather have a joint effort of two law firms dealing with one case that is difficult, uh, but getting more funding and then pushing it further. Well... One of the things that has happened in this case is this case was with commercial law firms mm. and it was passed down three times before it came to the LRC for the exact same reasons that I've explained to you now, which is lack of funding and capacity constraints. And, and, and as we said right at the outset, it's, this is not the kind of case that evokes sympathy with people. Mm. Um, however much I think it is completely right that we pursue it, I think it will be hard for us to, to partner with another firm, especially considering it's been handed to us from different commercial firms. I mean, um, Ms. Karina Dutoy, we, we understand your efforts and we appreciate them. And for, I would love to take this conversation further, but unfortunately this is the furthest I can go. Thank you for your invaluable uh, contribution this evening. No, you're very welcome. Law Focus, point, point of information. Whilst we are at the heart of our democratic constitutionalism, we are dealing with so much issues whenever we speak poverty, power, resources, protection, enforcement of law. There will, there will always be issues around that. And, I, and I, I'm one of those proponents in law, or rather legal proponents who think that there's very little that which the law can do to curb that. But also, I'm one of those people who speak like, uh, for example, Professor Duplessis, that at the heart of the the Constitution or the Bill of Rights is the fact that it's political mobilization, right? Because at the heart of power lies money, and at the heart of money lies protection and and so forth. And this particular case proves that point because you are dealing with prisoners, one, I mean, if if we 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 had the opportunity to listen to, we had the opportunity to listen to Miss Karina from the Legal Resources Centre, and she explained how difficult it is to to mobilise support for prisoners because it does not uh, call for a lot of sympathy. She explains how difficult it is because there, there's minimal costs, and perhaps they struggle to get support uh, financially. There's also there's also difficulty in getting medical reports. But also one of the factors that which have been identified, particularly by me, is that the liaison relationship between the Vest Justice Project and the LRC is not that strong. Because, I mean, for example, when we read the article that which is written by Ms. Ruth Hopkins, uh, titled that the company bidding for the Sasa tender is in court over torture allegations, um, G4S, because now <laughs> it seems like they want to go for that tender. Um, in that in that particular article and many other articles that which preceded this one uh, about this particular matter, she highlights how there were a couple of med- medical treatments uh, that that were that were done, although the difficulties that reports were not released. There were a lot of interviews that she has done, and if there was a if there was a, li- a liaison relationship between the two the Legal Resources Centre would have had uh, the opportunity to be able to to get affidavits out of the complainants. And clearly that has not been done yet. And that to me is is, is a problem. Clearly we, we are struggling with a very serious issue there. Because if if that can be ironed out, because she's, she's, um, the Legal Resources Centre has stated that it has been quite difficult to reach to the prisoners. Interesting enough, the... West Justice Project has not struggled to reach out to the prisoners. And so clearly, the, if there was communication and assistance on that, that wouldn't have been an issue. And by now, we would have had medical reports of the prisoners. All of these J88 forms would have been filled up. And clearly by now, perhaps we'd be reaching um, a space for trial. 
but th- that is not the case. And these torture ca- this torture case still remains in the air. But we also spoke to a, an inmate who explained to us some of the horrendous things that were happening inside. Um, and I'm still uncomfortable sitting on my chair after listening to all of those stories. Uh, we, we spoke to Ms. Ruth Hopkins, who outlined the entire investigation, and we wish the Vest Justice Project the best of the best. Please see the Vest Justice Project uh, website, uh, uh, www.vestjusticeproject.co.za, for more information on these particular cases. Um, what lies at the heart of it all is that uh, this is a daily case, and damages have to be claimed, and, and anyone who has been tortured ha- has to be compensated. That, that At the end of the day, that is the main thing. But at the heart of it all, it boils down to power. Right, because a contract was given to a very powerful company and now the government struggles to call it to account. <laughs> At the end of the day, that is the main thing. That is the main issue um, for, for democratic constitutionalism. That is the main issue for a post-colonial state. That, okay, this is where we are, this is what we're struggling with, but where to from here? Um, at the heart of it all is that there, was, there were tortures. We do have footage of that torture here and there. Uh, the Vest Justice Project just has to assist with that. Um, we know that antipsychotic drugs were used and a government report has not been released as to whether this is true or not. Or, you know, nothing has been done. And now we have two cases. The Center for Applied Legal Studies is applying for a case to release that report. And we also have the Legal Resources Center trying to push the torture case. At the end of the day, the truth must come out. Something must be done. Uh, from the Vest Radio Academy here at Vow FM, um, we, we we have reached the end of the show. Um, from my producer, Ms. Bulali Jakopu, from our technical production, Mr. Kutlano Gwench Serame, and from me, Basil Shirinda, your host, it's law, it's serious. Good evening. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with Vow FM 88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus, Consultant, 88.1, Point of Information. Law Focus Podcast.